1: Hi everyone and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Oyan Mandel about the new book, A Stethoscope for the Brain, Preventive Approaches to Protect the Mind. Blending the stories of people affected by brain disease with the science that saves patients' lives, neuroscientists Oyen Mondal invites readers to learn about the future of brain health. Oyen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, so can you tell us a bit more what you do?
0: Sure. So currently, I am a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. um, And uh, in tandem with that, I'm a neuroscientist. I got my PhD from the University of Cambridge before uh, coming to medical school. And so I do neuroscience research and also interested in becoming a practicing physician.
1: And how did you get interested in uh, this area?
0: Yeah, so I uh, I guess I was first interested in the brain. So, um, you know, when I was in college, I read some books from Oliver Sacks. I think this is a way that a lot of people end up becoming interested in the brain. Um, so Oliver Sacks is a neurologist. He writes stories about his patients, and I was just so fascinated by you know, how much you can learn about the brain and how we think by examining patients who have problems with, with the nervous system. Um, and it was this like very unique combination of uh, humanity and science. And um and yeah, so I so I, I wanted to, to study the brain more and more, and then I got involved in research. Um that led me into doing a PhD in neuroscience and um, you know, all throughout the way, I, you know, just really wanted to, um, you know, be in the room with people who are dealing with uh, neurological conditions. I felt like I got a lot of inspiration for that from them. So I pursued this uh, sort of combined path of, of getting uh, an MD as well, and, and hopefully becoming a physician scientist one day.
1: That's quite an interesting, um, sort of not a shift but addition to your uh, research uh, mindset, doesn't it? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and then I think it, it synergizes very well. I mean, I was I was very much inspired by physician scientist mentors that I have had whose research questions were very much motivated by you know the patients they saw in clinic, and uh, and I just really wanted that for myself. And I found, you know, even when I was doing my own PhD. Um, academia ends up being somewhat of a silo at times. And so being able to, um, you know, interact with people actually suffering from these conditions gives you a lot of really interesting ideas regarding what the next research questions should be and what research directions might be very beneficial for patients later down the line. Um, so so that's that's why I ended up taking the path I took.
1: And did you find it easy or difficult, this uh, kind of transition, or were you very supported uh, along your way?
0: It's, um, It's not very easy. I mean, I feel like it's two very different mindsets and you have to sort of switch between the two, especially like now. As I, I am still trying to finish up stuff from research during my PhD and now uh, medical school on top of that, um, but it's always fulfilling and always stimulating. You know, you're always thinking about something different, and um, that's it's just really nice. Um, so I, I appreciate being stimulated all the time, and so it's been a good path for me.
1: And perhaps the an obligatory question as well: What about the time timelines? You know, you, you've done your PhD. Obviously, that took you a few years and now medical school. What about this uh, side of it?
0: Yeah, so uh, my path ends up also being a bit unique because I did my PhD in the UK, where you can, in theory, do your PhD within three years because you start on your dissertation work immediately. Um, so so, after, so, coming out of, uh, of undergrad, I was still very much interested in medicine. Um, I don't think I would have done my PhD at that point if I had done it in the US, where it would have taken maybe six or eight years. Um, so so that that's kind of how I made the timeline work for me. I decided to um, get it at a school where I knew that I could finish quickly if I wanted to and to transition to medical training and get it all done in a reasonable time frame.
1: And uh, from your experiences, what would you say to our student listeners and perhaps uh, researchers that are also considering this kind of career uh, path?
0: Yeah, I think just always stay curious. That's the number one thing. Um, and, And read vociferously. I think um, that has been invaluable in terms of my research career, at least like how I uh, sort of made myself known around the lab was that I was always very up to date with the, the latest studies. I liked to go to journal clubs, lead journal clubs, stayed really in touch with the research, not just within my field, but in other fields too. And I think what that helps you do is look for the translations between different fields. You know, oftentimes an advance in science, is just Taking a technique, a method that was used to discover something in one system and applying it to your own system and to your own questions. And you can learn a lot of very interesting things that way. So I think that's a recipe for success in research. It's definitely a recipe for success in medicine where things are always constantly changing and you always have to learn. And for sure for writing. I mean, a lot of how I came up with stories, uh, to talk about for the book was just by reading very widely and, um, you know, just trying to connect, uh, the stories that already exist with, uh, emerging topics in neuroscience research.
1: So your latest book is A Stethoscope for the Brain, Preventive Approaches to Protect the Mind. And how did you get inspired? When did you decide that you wanted to write this book?
0: Yeah, so I uh, decided to start writing this um, right after I had committed to a medical school. And so I had just uh, spent all this time writing applications. And in my applications, I often say that, you know, I want this career as a public intellectual, as someone who writes for a public audience. And part of that was inspired by, like in college, I had also written a column for my school newspaper. And I always wanted this to be a big part of my career. And um, And but I realized I I hadn't really done much since undergrad in terms of advancing that side of myself. So so I first started with the idea that like I wanted to write a book that um, was in somewhat of an Oliver Sacks style, combining patient stories with um, latest advances in neuroscience research. And uh, and I know it was like in, in terms of settling on the exact idea of the book, stethoscope for the brain, and uh, this focus on proactive approaches for brain conditions, that started to develop while I was in medical school and learning about all the ways in which physicians can uh, diagnose and treat conditions before they ever um, you know manifest as symptoms that the patient experiences, and it just seems like. Know, neurology didn't have as many examples of, of that type of uh, phenomenon, and I also you know thought more about my research and other people's research, and I think that it's you know something that a lot of people are searching for, having better ways to diagnose brain conditions earlier and hopefully treat them earlier.
1: And so let's dive in and. Can I start with you maybe describing of where did you find yourself as an undergrad and in university? What kind of questions did you have about the brain?
0: Yeah, so I began college as a linguistics major. Actually, uh, I was very interested in the notion that you know language could have a physical basis to it. So, it's like, those interactions between cells and molecules could somehow result in speech and comprehension. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, at first I thought the best way of studying that was to study language itself. Um, and in addition, I worked in a neuroscience lab, I worked in a lab that studied patients with aphasia and these are patients who've had damage to their brain such that they uh, have deficits in language, deficits in either speaking or comprehending speech. Um, and, and yeah, and so, um, I got really interested in, in that sort of connection between brain and mind. And uh, it just led me to becoming more interested in the neuroscience behind several different cognitive functions. Um, so yeah, but so it started off with language, uh, and, but, but now has uh, transitioned to studying uh, other things, other diseases of the brain.
1: So many of our listeners uh, would uh, sort of ask oh or- well, you study the brain, of course, you know people who are developing these these disorders. Is that the way that research actually works uh, nowadays?
0: In terms of studying patients who have brain disease as as like a way of understanding the brain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's at least one area of neuroscience to um, investigate patient populations who have a certain condition and trying to learn more about... um, Know how that uh, you know brain function operates normally by by studying people who don't have it. Um, and that's certainly that's uh, a, a one segment of neuroscience research. I'd say there's a lot of different questions you can ask. Um, you know studies of patients can be quite limited. Obviously, for ethical considerations, it's hard to do, you know, actual experiments that are very invasive in people. Um, So a lot of neuroscience research, you know, will involve animal models, will involve um, sort of other ways, other sort of uh, circumstances where performing experiments might be more ethical and acceptable. Um, but, But there's, a lot to learn, I think, from, from studying patients. Uh, in particular, the word that's sometimes used as natural experiments. So when um, people have strokes and certain areas of the brain, that presents like an opportunity to uh, study what the functions of those brain regions are. Um, in a way where you haven't manipulated anything, but just based on how um, disease patterns and how they manifest, it allows you to study certain, aspects ask and answer certain questions
1: and then when we think about more basic research when it comes to molecular sciences how do we translate it to the patients how are these two fields sort of coinciding
0: yeah i mean it's it's a constant question and i think uh what's unfortunate is that not enough of it happens at least how um The pipeline that seems to potentially work and and can can translate between these things is um, this pipeline that first involves, it's it's more applicable to conditions that um, are in some way genetically mediated. So let's take like schizophrenia, for instance. This is a disorder that's pretty highly heritable. Um, One sort of strategy to translating between patients and, and the wet lab and vice versa is to understand genes which seem to be associated with a brain disease like schizophrenia and then once we understand what those genes are we can go to the wet lab and start figuring out what the functions of those genes actually are for the brain. We can start trying to um, introduce those specific genetic mutations or um, you know phenotypes into uh, animals and start understanding a bit about how um, you know the how, how these genetic mutations affect behavior that way. And then we can find, um, you know, better therapies and tools to reverse whatever those, uh, you know, genetic risk factors are doing in the animal model and um, turn that into a therapy that we then introduce to patients. So that's, uh, it doesn't always work exactly that way, but that's that's the general idea of how we we can sort of one way which we can flip back and forth between, you know, the patient studies and the animal models and vice versa. But but that's just one example. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, a, a huge challenge and something we're still trying to work on.
1: So now circling back to the title of your book, Statoscope for the Brain, can you describe how did you come uh, to this title and what does it mean?
0: Yeah, so um, Statoscope for the Brain. So I guess I'll start with what, what, what I think it means. Um, so uh, a very amazing and underrated thing happens when you go to the doctor's office. Um, So a physician's able to take your blood pressure um, and this ends up being a measure of your cardiovascular health, ends up being pretty predictive of various different types of bad things that can happen to your heart. And if you keep this blood pressure measurements low, um, that's, you know, prognosticates pretty well for you that you're not going to have significant health problems. At least it's uh, a good marker that it's not going, that's not going to happen. So, and uh, where where stethoscope comes in is that stethoscope is an instrument that is used in the measurement of a blood pressure. Um, So that idea of having, you know, not necessarily a symptom, a problem that a patient has, you know, having a high blood pressure is sometimes called the silent killer because you don't have any symptoms from it. But knowing that you have a high blood pressure gives you an indication that uh, something is wrong with your heart and you can then start to take preventive measures to prevent, to stop you from having any actual symptoms of heart disease. And the the question really is, how can we develop tools like that for the brain? How can we develop a stethoscope for the brain? Something that allows us to not invasively, but proactively assess brain health so that we can make changes before irreversible brain damage occurs.
1: Oh, I really hope that this could be a possibility in the near future. So can we start with a few things that can go wrong with the brain?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of things can go wrong with the brain, unfortunately. Um, I think like, so one thing that I talk a lot about in the book, I think it's top of mind for for many listeners and for many people in general is uh, dementia and neurodegeneration. So um, just through the normal aging process, along with some biological processes that we're still learning more and more about, uh, you can get an accumulation of bad proteins in the brain, and these can cause very significant damage. Um, And uh, when they cause enough damage, you get what uh, people call dementia or, and the most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Uh, So memory impairments or other types of cognitive impairments that result from uh, too much of these bad proteins accumulating in the brain. Um, the, The tricky thing with it is that we now have very good evidence that a lot of this underlying pathology, a lot of this sort of accumulation of bad proteins is happening well before people experience any symptoms. Um, and by the time that people have significant symptoms from these types of conditions, have a, you know, observable dementia, a lot of damage might have already been done. So so that's, that's sort of what hints at, you know, the purpose of this book to um, Start of catching these problems earlier. Um, but it's a very um, prevalent problem across the world, especially as we are an aging population and the fact that aging is the number one risk factor for having dementia. Um, I'd say that's, that's top of mind for me and top of mind for a lot of people.
1: So, this has been studied for well over a century, hasn't it? And yeah. What is your perspective on our progress? How are we approaching it?
0: Yeah, so I think um, the progress has, the, there are stories that people tell and there are stories that people don't tell, I think, with respect to all of this. Um, a lot of the, the conversation has surrounded how can we, um, you know, which are the exact proteins that are involved, you know? So there's amyloid beta and there's tau protein. And we know that um, both are associated, which is playing the bigger role, Um, we've made a lot of progress in terms of, uh, unraveling this story and trying to, uh, figure out like what, who the major players are. And, you know, like I was saying before, a big, uh, sort of helpful thing in disentangling these, these types of questions is the genetics. So we know of various genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, and that's given us, um, some clues into the pathophysiology of it all. Um. And, uh, you know, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners might be familiar with, we've, um, you know, tried targeting these, uh, these bad proteins, specifically amyloid, quite a lot. Um, we've had limited success in that domain. Um, there was a drug that uh, very recently came out um, that has promised so far, there's only been a press release about it saying that it leads to better clinical outcomes. Um, And then there was another drug that has uh, been approved by the FDA, but there's this whole controversy surrounding that that I won't get into right now. Um, So that's a long way of saying we're developing, we're we're starting to get to a place where we have therapies, um, but they're still in this experimental stage. Um, The hope is that we can start rolling those out and that they'll be shown and established very convincingly to be effective. And then that will be a huge milestone in our centuries long fight against dementia for sure.
1: And then uh, touching up on the second part of uh, the title of your book, the preventive approaches. So when it comes to the long, long-term neurodegeneration that could uh, result in dementia, what kind of uh, preventive approaches uh, are or have been proven, maybe stave off the uh, yeah. progression?
0: Yeah, I mean, so there's uh, a good amount of work uh, showing that you know the same things that keep your heart healthy are very good for keeping your brain healthy so exercise has been shown to uh you know reduce your risk of dementia quite substantially eating a mediterranean diet is something that people like point to a lot as being effective for um you know, preventing dementia. Something I go into a little bit of detail about in the book is this notion of, you know, early childhood education and just education throughout your life in terms of keeping your mind stimulated. Um, The the thought process here is that, um, so on the one hand, we have this pathology happening, this accumulation of amyloid beta that's damaging your brain. But, um, you know, what, what most people care about is not necessarily, you know, do i have bad proteins in my brain but rather am i able to still function at um, you know my normal level and it turns out that if we can keep our minds stimulated if we can keep ourselves healthy um, we can you know live without having dementia even if this underlying pathology is happening in our brain And, and so this is a notion called cognitive reserve and we find that it can be enhanced by by things like um, you know, lifelong bilingualism using two different languages or multiple languages throughout your life, keeping up with playing an instrument, social engagement is a very big one. Um, so social isolation's been associated with a 50% um, you know, increased risk of dementia. And so by you know, we, we don't think of talking to people as a very cognitively stimulating activity, but it actually is to carry on a conversation. It's, It's something that really challenges your mind, and, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of elderly people don't get a lot of social engagement, so ways in which we can keep our sort of brain circuits or our brain stimulated and energized, um, that th- there's a lot of good evidence showing that this can be very effective at preventing dementia. If we had drugs that had the same effect sizes of um, what these types of interventions have been able to do for the brain, um, I think that uh, you know whatever companies developed drugs with that level of effectiveness would be very rich right now. Um, so I think it's a very you know, under um, appreciated way of of, uh of protecting your brain just um staying healthy and staying cognitively engaged
1: mm, i'm really glad that you uh, started on this uh, topic of the cognitive reserve and especially thinking about some of the individuals that can be called resilient that can build up a uh, huge amounts of these uh, sort of uh, quote unquote bad proteins but they can still function well into their old age without the signs of dementia itself. So can you maybe describe a couple of studies that uh, have been conducted on these uh, individuals?
0: Yeah, so at least the, the study I talk about in the book is, it's called the Nun study. It's a very clever one because it, in, in all these types of, um, you know, questions and experiments that we're talking about, which involve relating something like early childhood education, with uh, prevention from dementia, uh, you run into this problem of confounding variables. So you might imagine that there are a ton of different things associated with having early childhood education, like being of a higher socioeconomic status, having better health maintenance, and, and all these different things that could also you know, be what's actually related with being protected from dementia. Um, but you know, to, to sort of isolate out that one variable of education, takes a lot of statistical work, it might not necessarily be valid. So what the nun study did that was very clever is they took a population of Catholic nuns who all live very similar lifestyles. You know, they have the same access to healthcare. They eat more or less the same things. Um, They're similar on on a number of different levels. The one difference is is really like what they did before they joined the the convents, the, the place where the nuns live. And, um, and yeah, and that they're able with that type of experimental design sort of free from most confounding variables, they're able to show this association between, um, you know, in, in particular, uh, early, like, you know, linguistic ability or generating a lot of ideas in your speech. And, and that has an association with education too, um, that was, was, uh, shown to be, uh, you know, common amongst these nuns who never had dementia. Mm. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so that's the main study that, that I have in mind. A number of subsequent studies have been done since then, hopefully trying to find like the, the neural substrate of cognitive reserve that's been a bit less successful, but, um, where it's, uh, people have been able to show that things like social engagement is associated with, um, you know, or not as much reduction in the volume of your hippocampus or other structures in the brain that are associated with dementia. So um, it's been a a pretty exciting field, but something that I think gets as much press as it should.
1: So now thinking about the factors that can lead to brain disorders from the outside, so more like trauma. So what do we know about these kinds of uh, disorders and how do we prevent them?
0: Yeah, so um, head trauma is an interesting one because so how I'd classify it is that we have like two types of head trauma. You have you have like an injury to your head that can um, basically result in bleeding into your brain, um, and that type of head trauma, the results of it is something that we can uh, we have a stethoscope for that. We have brain imaging, and it's an ability, and it's a tool that allows us to. Um, figure out that that type of problem is happening and, and allows us to, um, r- resolve it and treat it. Now there's more conversation about, uh, the sort of invisible head traumas. So repeated, um, injuries to the head that might cause, um, concussions. So, um, you know, cognitive states that where you might be having a bad headache and, a uh, um, decrease, uh, you know, you might sort of be afraid or, or, um, Negatively imp- impacted by light and all these other symptoms associated with having a concussion. Um, the having lots of those isn't very good for your brain, obviously. And um, there are also subconcussive impacts, so injuries to your head, but don't something that you don't necessarily notice. Mm. Now, um, those types of head injuries that don't result in something that you can visualize if you scan the brain um, those are being associated now with um, what's called chronic traumatic encephalopathy a type of dementia um, that we still don't really know very much about um, and especially there's been a big conversation about this type of um, medical disorder happening to former American football players um, so so yeah so I think that uh, we have some tools to identify and treat, you know, certain types of brain disorders or or head traumas that result in, um, you know, Gross findings, but in terms of understanding these uh, head injuries that lead to more minor and microscopic changes that might nevertheless affect brain function in the long term, that's something that's still not known. Now, in terms of preventing these things, I mean, you know, the the sort of obvious idea could be to, um, you know, not do these sports or not pursue these occupations that um are associated with recurrent head trauma Um, but but yeah i think there's also with everything in in medicine there's there's got to be this balance between um your hobbies and what you you know really enjoy doing and get a lot of joy derive a lot of meaning from with the uh activities that we know are healthy so so nobody wants to live like a perfectly healthy life i think that we all have our you know guilty pleasures we all um you know life wouldn't be worth living unless there was something to live for Uh, i I think it's it's still a challenge to, to sort of grapple between um you know that desire to live how you want to with also wanting to be as healthy as possible. And I think that just if we had more tools to better detect and, and understand those subconcussive um, head injuries and monitor how much of them we're having and whether it's something that we need to be worried about or not, um, that's just going to help people make better and more informed decisions.
1: So now we've been talking about more endogenous and exogenous causes, uh, quote unquote, because we don't really know uh, down to molecular level of uh, uh, brain um h- how the brain goes wrong so of course in medicine and in life nothing is in vacuum so there's always plenty of interactions and what do we know from the from this side of the coin perhaps uh, the intermingling of genetics and environmental factors
0: sorry could you phrase the question again
1: so what do you know about the intermingling of the environmental factors and genetics of the individual and their susceptibility to develop brain di- disorders, for example?
0: Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's very different depending on like which disorder we're talking about. They're all very, very uh, different and have distinct ideologies. I think that for, um, for disorders like stroke, for ALS, for brain tumors, for, you know, head trauma, I guess you could put in that category too. There's unfortunately like not much that is very predictive of whether you're going to have, um, you know, certain types of brain problems, like um, having a brain tumor, for instance, there are very few predictive risk factors for whether or not you're going to have this, and the only environmental factor that we have to work with is um, exposure to radiation. That's the only thing that's really been robustly shown to be associated with having a brain tumor. So, so for some of these, it's there. There isn't a lot to go off of mm. from the genetics. For some more of these, there is some stuff to go off of by the environmental factors, or at least things that happen after you're born. Um, So for stroke, we have um, hypertension or or having a high blood pressure is associated with, um, you know, having a stroke. And so taking, having healthy living habits can prevent us from some of these too. Um, But that's why I think we need sort of protection on multiple levels um, with with these types of conditions. So, we need to uh, also be thinking proactively. You know, not just in terms of preventing. Uh, you know strokes and and uh things that we can predict but also how can we also be thinking proactively when we're considering a condition like a brain tumor that um, has a high likelihood of progressing um so so i think it's 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 going to be a different answer depending on which which condition that we're uh honing in on because um you know they all have very distinct ideologies
1: hmm. and thinking about the environmental reasons for developing uh, um, some of the psychiatric disorders. So do we know a lot about the pollutants like air pollution, for example, or heavy metals, how can or pesticides and uh, stuff like this? Like, how can this influence our susceptibility in developing some of these disorders?
0: Yeah, no, that's a really great question. So I, um, well, in terms of like that specific question with environmental factors, I think that like lead paint is something that's associated with all types of bad things for for your brain. But um, where I think that uh, the conversation gets really interesting and, and what I talk a little bit about the book is this concept of adverse childhood experiences or, or ACEs is sometimes what people call them. So um, having like bad things happen to you as a child Things like, uh, you know, your parents uh, consistently hit you or, um, you know, one of your caretakers went to jail. Um, these types of adverse childhood experiences. If you accumulate um, enough of these greater than four, it's associated with a very substantial raised risk for depression and for many other um. You know, psychiatric conditions affecting the brain. Um, that, in addition to physical health disorders as well. So, the study that was published on this showed an association between adverse childhood experiences and a wide range of of poor health outcomes. Um, and I think that's you know very interesting and important to to keep in mind when writing a book when when talking about the you know preventive neurology and preventive neuroscience. It's it's that. Um, you know, we, it's. We think that a lot of the progress is going to happen with like more fancy tools and with um, you know, new sort of advanced therapies. But oftentimes, I think that what we need is is really a true public health um, response and something that uh, addresses the social determinants of health, um, because like this, these things can be like just as associated with um, you know future brain pathology. Um, as all the biomarkers that we hope to find and uh, hope are going to be successful.
1: That's an excellent point, that we really need to look beyond the individual uh, on a societal level when we want to address these kinds of issues.
0: Mm -hmm. I totally agree.
1: Yeah, and many of our listeners perhaps also heard about many of the big brain projects that have been around in the world. Why do you think these haven't been as successful as they were purported to be to address these kind of um, disorders?
0: Yeah, so, um, you yeah, there have been a lot of major projects. I would push back on um, them not being successful. I think that there's like still a lot more to learn. Um, So at least like one thing that I would call like a very big project that I think has led to a lot of really important insights is the UK Biobank project that has recruited like a pretty good segment of the population of the United Kingdom and has collected all types of very interesting data relating to the brain and relating to physical health and has put a lot of these different things together to come up with like very interesting epidemiological data that is actionable. Um, so, for instance, like they had a study recently that I would have loved to include in the book, but um, you know, I'd, I'd already sent it off. Um- Showing this association between, um, you know, how many walk, how many steps you take in a in a day, and and the association between that and um, risk for dementia, showing that if you take, and I think the number was around ten thousand steps a day, that it dramatically reduces your risk of of having dementia. So so I think there there are some like you know, large scale projects that have been you know very good and very helpful and have taught us a lot um there have been others that have been less successful and I think that the the issue sometimes is like it has to be very clear what the goals are right and and so I think that for instance when we're talking about things like um developing a wiring diagram for the brain or connectomics which is you know my area of research um I think that uh Sometimes there needs to be a sense of like what what are you going to do once you have that tool available to you and how is it going to translate to patient care. Sometimes you don't know, and that's the point of doing the the science and doing the work to uh, discover things you don't know currently. But um, what I thought was really important and good about this book is that I think it provides a roadmap for what we can do. You know, many people see the brain as like a black box that we're not going to be able to crack that we don't know a lot about. And you know, in large part that's true, but I think we also have a model from other areas of medicine, areas of medicine like cardiology that have developed a lot of new treatments and a lot of new and innovative ways to treat the heart. And um, I think neurology has a lot to learn from these disciplines. And if we take the model of better understanding, you know, predictors of disease and learning how we can modify those, um, I think that's a recipe for success.
1: So what directions in neurology nowadays really excite you?
0: Yeah. So one thing I talk about the book that really excites me is, um, you know, work on multiple sclerosis and it's association with uh the epstein-barr virus so um so multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition it's the most common cause of disability in young adults and um it's uh we're there's a study published just this year in 2022 presenting pretty good evidence that um a virus called the epstein-barr virus is a um, plays a causative role in, in multiple sclerosis. Now, it's the case that like many, many people, I think like 90% of the adult population gets infected with multiple sclerosis, with, with, um, with Epstein-Barr virus at some point, and only a minority of these people end up getting multiple sclerosis, obviously. Um, but it's, it's if, if you have it, uh, if you have Epstein-Barr virus, it seems to be that seems to be a necessary condition for, almost a necessary condition for developing multiple sclerosis. And that's really interesting because we can develop vaccines against viruses. You know, obviously with COVID, we've developed a pretty good vaccine against it. Um, And that gives us now a really neat target for, um, do it for maybe like eradicating multiple sclerosis from the planet. I mean, it's a big goal, a lofty goal. It's not, it's something that uh, I don't want to make any promises about, but, you know, in the same way that we were able to, you know, virtually eradicate polio by developing a vaccine against the polio um, you know, maybe one day we'll see that for multiple sclerosis. It would be, uh, I don't want to sort of hype it up too much because I'm sure I'm not an expert in the field and I'm sure there are many barriers to getting there. But um, I think that's, that's really exciting to think, to think about, like you know, really reducing the incidence of some of these diseases at a global scale by just like a simple vaccine, the same way that we've been able to limit the burden of several different illnesses.
1: That study is really fascinating, isn't it? And the way they approached it uh, to get such a huge uh, number of uh, samples that were collected over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, and that's almost like a, a theme of the book, it seems like mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate these like very large scale and like innovative epidemiological studies uh, that provide like, you know, very actionable insights and things that we can actually do. know, something that was planned over a very over like over 20 years. And sometimes that's what it takes to to come to a very, you know, interesting and important result. But uh, we're, we're better off for it.
1: So then where do we find ourselves nowadays? So, of course, uh, we can be talking about uh, the wishful thinking about uh, treating diseases at a very, well, near future, but not all of them will be treated in the near future, will they?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that, and that's, again, why we need sort of defenses on multiple fronts. I think that mm-hmm. we need, um, you know, we, we, it would be, you know, fool's errand to think just about preventing disease and not about, um, you know, treating the diseases that already exist. I think that um, no matter what preventive uh, approaches exist in the future, there's always gonna be people who get extremely sick, even though they've done all the right things, unfortunately. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: so I think we need a combination of, um, you know, better things we can do for people who are currently sick and, but always have an eye towards how we're going to prevent diseases going forward.
1: Yeah, and perhaps also the aspect that um, you even started with, uh, you know, including more patients in the research and have these conversations within and uh, between the fields, right?
0: Oh, yeah. No, I think that's invaluable with with this type of work. I think that, um, yeah, and then the collaboration between disciplines, I think that's that's been um, what I've really appreciated by just being in this unique student of unique uh, situation where I am a neuroscientist and also a medical student. Too, um, oftentimes in research we get stuck in um, silos, and but. Do things like reading books and writing books. I think that uh, public engagement is something that just exposes you to a lot of really interesting ideas and allows you to make unique connections and new, unique insights that mm. inspire, uh, you know, breakthroughs in the field, hopefully.
1: So now, thinking about more of a bigger picture what next steps do you foresee that we as as a society should take to maybe be nearing this goal of having a good brain health on the level of society?
0: Yeah, so I think that number one is might sound kind of boring because it's a little obvious, but because, you know, a lot of the book we've highlighted all of these sort of social public health factors that uh, social determinants of health that relate to bad health bad outcomes for the brain. And I think that, you know, this is something that we already know is the case. This is something that is strongly associated, not just with brain disease, but heart disease and all these things. Um, I I think the first step is to uh, just expand or uh, improve healthcare access to more people and and encourage healthy living across more people. Um, And that's going to do a whole lot of good, not just for the brain, but for um, a lot of different health, um, organ systems. Uh, but then sort of second to that in terms of like what we can really like have our hands on as like neuroscientists is, um, you know, thinking more about how our work could translate to, um, making a difference for patients. Now, I, obviously, like how science works is not you come up with very insightful um, realizations by doing something that you might think is totally unrelated to human health and like CRISPR and, and how CRISPR was identified is, is a good example of that. But um, I think the, that well, you know, when you talk about the failures of some of these very large scale projects, I think that um, the way to sort of you know, help yourself not fail is is if you have in mind like how your work's going to really transform people's lives. Mm -hmm. And and I think that uh, what I hope to do with this book was just present sort of one way of doing it. And that means getting a better sense of how we can diagnose these conditions earlier. How can we get a better sense of like, classifying and dissecting the heterogeneity of these conditions because the main reason why a lot of our um, clinical trials fail to find new treatments is because um, we're treating something as if it's one disorder but it might be multiple um, just just trying to get a better understand getting a better handle of how to diagnose these things in the first place and to diagnose them accurately I think that's the first step before we can start uh, you know, hopefully the, the last step and the, and the ultimate step is to develop better therapies. But I think that's something that a lot of people in, in neuroscience have you know, realized and uh, I'm glad a lot of attention is going towards it. Uh, we, we also just need to understand these conditions better um, at a basic level um, before we design uh, you know clinical trials that are gonna be effective.
1: And what discoveries in your research for your book, A Stethoscope for the Brain, surprised you the most?
0: Yeah, I think the big one uh, is that, you know, so on the one hand, Alzheimer's disease has, uh, or dementia has been increasing in prevalence, um, you know, over the years, right? Because we're an aging population. And so um, more people are uh, getting dementia because of that but we've actually done a better job at reducing the risk of dementia over time. So if we adjust for the fact that people are older now than um, they were 10 or 20 years ago, um, less people have uh, you know, dementia if we correct for the, the age differences. And so why is that? So it's because um, people are taking care of their heart a lot better than they were before. So we, we have all these new therapies to control blood pressure. We have um, these, you know, more guidance about how to eat healthily and live healthily. And um, by protecting our heart health, we also protect, protect our brain health um, via several factors that I discuss in the book. People have more access to education now than they did before. More people are going to school. Um, we've made several advances as a, as a society is what I'm saying. And uh, that has you know translated into a measurable reduced risk for having dementia. And I think that's something that I did not know at all before doing this book. I think that there's... Um, sort of this bad news bias that uh, oftentimes happens in all types of media and I think science media too uh, in, in journalism, the, the phrase is, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so I think that we're, we, we don't always talk about, talk enough about the successes we've made as a society, but I think they're also important to highlight because it's, uh, you know, inspires the idea that we can make progress and we should continue to make progress. Um, so it's, it's easy to feel uh you know hopeless sometimes in the face of like how devastating these conditions can be but i think that i I take a lot of solace in knowing that we've um we're moving in the right direction in some ways
1: and you yourself knowing so much about brain health so what do you do to protect it or do you have any guilty pleasures that can be deemed unhealthy
0: yeah. So some of my loved ones like make fun of me a lot because I'm, you know, supposedly this preventive medicine <laughs> guy, but uh, I don't always live up to that. I mean, I, I, I do try to exercise regularly. I try to walk regularly. I try to eat healthily. Um, my, my big thing is that I, I do eat a lot of red meats and, and that's probably not good for you, um, but that's, that's sort of my guilty pleasure. Otherwise, like I, I don't eat a lot of sweet things. Um, And and I try to lead a somewhat active and mentally stimulating uh, lifestyle. Uh, so hopefully that protects me, but you know, and then it doesn't work for everyone and and we have to be uh, safe. And, um, and I think it's important to also, you know, live your life and, and enjoy the time that you do have. Um, (laughs) I I think it'd be too stressful to sort of think like about how to live as healthily as possible all the time. I think it's, it's, it's okay to have one or two guilty pleasures.
1: No, for sure. Small steps, but maybe binge uh, some trash TV, TV now and then.
0: Oh, of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this has been a truly insightful discussion. So, can you tell us what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project?
0: Yeah. So for, for the first thing is I have to pass and, and get through medical school. So in uh, January, I start my clinical rotations, which um, is a very uh, busy time. And so um, unfortunately, I think I'll have to put down the pen for a little bit, but I hope to gather a lot of you know new insights from working in a hospital that could inform my next project. Um, part of me wants to like already even do like a second edition of this, book because as I've alluded to in this conversation, there's just been so much Progress even since I, I I sent it out to publishers. So um, so I think like that would be a neat thing to do. Um, otherwise, I've also have an interest in uh, physician mental health, especially after COVID nineteen and and the burden that you know all of us as a society have been through. But I think especially healthcare workers, in terms of caring for you know very sick population. Um, I think that there are going to be, you know, downstream effects from, from all of that. And, um, it's something that I'm interested in learning more about and and potentially writing about, but we'll see how, how that might fit into my, um, my, my, my schedule for clinical training first.
1: And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Yeah, so the easiest thing to do is to go on Amazon and search a stethoscope for the brain. Um, That's probably going to be the most reliable place to find uh, a copy of it. Uh, Otherwise, more information about me can be found just by Googling my name.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.